have come to Psalm 119. Many have been living in fear of this very moment for quite some time. But we'll see if we can get through it. All right, so we will start with our summary statement for Psalm 119. Psalm 119 praises the Lord for the treasure of his word. Because all benefits, blessings, and promises... For those who trust him, are fulfilled according to his word. So I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 119 praises the Lord for the treasure of his word. Because all benefits, blessings, and promises for those who trust him are fulfilled according to his word. Uh, As I thought about trying to outline this psalm, um, I really didn't see a good way to do it beyond its own structure. So uh, that would just be uh, the 22 stanzas, eight verses each, uh, going through the Hebrew alphabet. And so we'll talk about that more as, as we go on. But I didn't, um, I tried to break it this way or that way, and it really just didn't, just didn't make sense. So, uh, so that, that's how the psalm is structured, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. All right, so let's go to our observations. Psalm 119 is an anonymous psalm. Uh, There's no superscription. uh, There's no author attribution. um, There's not even really... um, Some historically have have attributed it to David. Um, There's not really a lot of good reason for that other than just he wrote most of the psalms. Um, I mean, there's maybe a few things you could look at. Um, there's no real good, good compelling reason there. There's no musical direction that's given in the psalm, uh, and there's no occasion that is given for the writing of this psalm. Now, to think about the occasion, though, there are um, some hints, I think, within the psalm itself. There's a number of terms that are used in the psalm, and we'll see some of those as we go through, that contribute to an exile Motif, And we have certainly seen that in the psalm before. Uh, we have references to being a stranger in the earth, being under princes and kings, um, God's word being the inheritance. Um, in other words, the inheritance is not realized, it's the promise. Um, that's, that's what um, the psalmist has. So when you look at this psalm, um, 176 verses, and there's no mention of Israel, no mention of the tabernacle or a temple. 
There's no mention of priests or sacrifices or feasts and no mention of Moses. When you put this together with this psalm and the emphasis on God's word and then also the prevalence of enemies, it suggests that this psalm was written in exile. This psalm is written or possibly post-exile and maybe someone that was still yet outside the land of Israel. Um, Some scholars, uh, as I've looked into this, have suggested that Psalm 119 was possibly one of the last psalms that were written, um, if it was not the very last psalm that was written. uh, So that would put it somewhere toward the end of the Old Testament. And I do think there's, there's certainly something to be said for that um, because of the, of the um, mention of, of exile terms and, and things of that nature. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through. So, um, but beyond that, we really don't have an occasion for the writing of the psalm. Now, to categorize this, Psalm 119 is a Torah psalm. The word Hebrew word Torah, uh, which occurs, I think, about 25 times in, in the psalm, Um, It is a Torah psalm, and that makes it the third primary Torah psalm in the psalms. So that would be Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119. Um, Being a Torah psalm uh, also means it's going to have many wisdom elements, which this psalm does. Uh, A lot of wisdom elements in this psalm as well. It also has some minor elements. It has some minor elements of praise and thanksgiving. Um, has some minor elements of lament. Uh, and in fact, we could even probably name, get a little more and more and more minor and, and name some others, but um, felt like those were the ones um, most prominent. Now, Psalm 119 does have connections, obviously, with the other Torah Psalms. Um, but Psalm 119 is also part of what are, we could refer to as a messianic Torah pair. So there's a, a coupling of psalms. So, for instance, Psalm 1 is a Torah psalm that begins the psalm. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. And then Psalm 18 is a messianic psalm, and Psalm 19 is a Torah psalm. Psalm 118 that we looked at previous to this is a messianic psalm, and Psalm 119 is a Torah psalm. And so at, at those three places in the psalms, you have this pair of Messianic and Torah psalms um, that occur together. And so obviously there's going to be connections between those groups of psalms. Now beyond that, uh, you know, of course this psalm is just so um, uh, so immense, I guess, that it's going to have connections with, with lots of psalms um, because a lot of things are, are mentioned here and there and, and otherwise. So, but it still fits in, um, especially when you think about it, uh, most likely been written in and for an an exile context, um, it certainly fits in with book number five and and what we've been following along in the the flow of the Psalms to this point. The poetic features of Psalm 119. I guess you have to start with the most obvious poetic feature of Psalm 119, and that is its length. It is the longest psalm. And the length of the psalm is actually a function of the structure of, of the psalm, and we'll talk a little bit more about that um, in, in in just a minute. But why is this psalm so long? Um, and sometimes those kind of questions are not the easiest to answer. 
But I do think there's a, there's a few things that we can take away, just knowing some things about Hebrew poetry and, and uh, knowing some things about this psalm. Um, as far as, when you look at this psalm as a whole, and as far as maybe the different ideas or the different concepts that are expressed in this psalm, it could be written much shorter. I mean, there's a lot of similarities and repetitions and that sort of thing in, in the psalm, and so it could be written in a much shorter space and essentially cover all the same things. Um, so a long, lengthy psalm like this, on the one hand, it suggests a completeness of the subject. This is an, this is an, it's an extensive treatment of um, the Word of God. And another reason for the length of the psalm is the effect. So when you're, when you're talking about poetry... Poetry, um, it, it, it's written for um, beauty. There's, a, there's an aesthetic dimension there for beautiful expression. Um, it's, it's written for, uh, but it's, it is also written for um, feeling, like, the, like there's a certain experience or there's a certain emotion of, of the psalm um, that we could talk about. And so having a long psalm, as it were, talking about the Word of God means that it slows you down. You just can't read Psalm 119 in a hurry. It slows you down. So it causes you to read more carefully. It, it's, it's to cause you to think more about what you're reading, to meditate more on what you're reading. So sometimes, um, sometimes this sort of thing happens in, in literature, for instance, um, and... So let's say that someone in a, in a book and they're trying to, they're writing about maybe there's a journey or something and there's a part of this journey that's sort of long and boring and monotonous and you, you, sometimes you can, you can tell, you can perceive there's a shift in the style where the author that's writing this description, he's actually writing it in a long, boring and monotonous way. Now some people, you know, hate those chapters and let's just, let's just skip by them. But there's, a, there's an intended effect. In other words, it's, it's not just to give you a description, but it's to, it's to also make you experience some of what is happening. There's probably a, a, a literary term for that. I don't know what it is. Um, it it, it, it kind of reminds me of, and I forget the term for this too, but you know how there are words that sound like what they describe, like the word cough? You know, it sounds like what, what it is, you know, that sort of thing. And so that's... When you have poetry especially, and you have highly structured writing, you have, you have an, an intended effect for the reading of the psalm. So I do think these are some of the reasons we can look at to, as to why this psalm is so long, uh, and I do think that it accomplishes that effect as well. Now, the, the next poetic feature is obviously going to be the structure. I mean, it's, it's the, probably the most famous psalm for being an acrostic um, psalm. Uh, the psalm itself is composed of 22 stanzas, and each stanza contains eight verses. Now, the 22 stanzas are arranged um, according to the Hebrew alphabet, going all the way from Aleph to Tav. Uh, you may have those headings. I think a lot of those Bibles have the headings in there. Um, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, you know, on and on and on it goes. Um, so every section, every stanza of eight verses 
Each verse of that stanza begins with a word that begins with that letter. All right, so that's the structure of it. So imagine that you're in some English composition class and your assignment is to take the English alphabet, 26 letters, and to compose a poem of 26 stanzas of eight verses each where the first word begins with that letter. Now just imagine, and you've got to write this about some subject. You've got to actually say something meaningful about it. Well, just think about how difficult of a thing that that is. Um, but that's, again, in, in poetry, it's not unusual to have that kind of a structure. Uh, and there's reasons, you know, for having that kind of structure. And again, um, maybe we can't name them all uh, or, or know for certain, but obviously it's like going from A to Z. So this is a meditation on God's word from A to Z. Um, it'd be like saying that, you know, in English. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's an exhaustive, it's, it's a, a, a thorough um, meditation on God's Word. And again, there's, there's, there, is, there is artistic aspect to it, um, beauty of expression and all that. Now, when it comes to imagery, this psalm is rather minimal. There's some imagery as you go in the psalm, but there's, it's not a lot. And it certainly is not relying on that as sort of being the movement for the psalm. In fact, when, you're, when you think about movement, which we've, we've noted a number of times in different psalms, that there's a sort of a beginning to end movement, and there's not really movement like that um, in this particular psalm. It seems like that that structure is really what dominates, um, which is another reason why it's, it's kind of difficult to, to break it down into a, some sort of a simple outline. Um, does, the psalm does use some repetition. So there's a lot of repetition in the psalm, actually, um, but, but one of the primary repetitions that we have to pay attention to, um, the psalm uses the word Torah um, 25 times, um, and Torah uh, means instruction. Um, it's oftentimes translated law. And then besides Torah, it uses seven different Hebrew words that are essentially synonyms or related terms that are in some way referring to Torah. And, and by referring to Torah, ultimately really what the reference is is to God's word and primarily his written word. It's not um, just you know the books of Moses or, or what have you. So there are seven different synonyms, and, the, and each of those seven different synonyms are also used around 20 times. I think maybe there's one that is only like 19 or something, but anywhere from 19 to 23 times those word, those synonyms appeared. I think there's, um, uh, I may be wrong about this, but I, th- I think there's only like two verses in the entire psalm where there's, there's the word Torah or some related word is, doesn't actually appear. So it's, it's, it's obviously dominant, and that's what we have to pay attention to. So we get law, we get testimonies, precepts, commandments, words, statutes, judgment, ways, um, this, all these sort of things that are used essentially synonymously to speak about God's word. Okay, so we're going to, we are going to work through the psalm, and obviously we're going to do this a little bit differently um, because um, there's just too many verses. So um, I will read stand, the stanza, and I, I'm going to give a few comments. Some might have a little bit more, but for the most part, I'm going to keep comments down. I'll probably just point out a few things as, as we go through, and then we'll 
um, get to the interpretation about this time tomorrow. Okay, Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8 is the Aleph stanza. And again, of course, it doesn't come, come across in English, but this is um, verses 1 to 8. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgments. I will keep thy statutes. Oh, forsake me not utterly. So the psalm opens with the blessed condition, which reminds us immediately of Psalm number one. Um, those who walk in the law of the Lord. And the term blameless that's, that's used there, um, blameless by the law doesn't mean what we generally think of in terms of sinless perfection. Blameless by the law um, refers to one not, not guilty of law-breaking, not a, um, you know, not a, not a transgressor, um, someone not, um, not accused of, of habitual law-breaking, that sort of thing. Now, the Hebrew word Torah that appears here, and it's, it's translated um, law, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now, the word Torah, um, it means um, instruction. Um, so the word Torah was translated in, in the Greek translation with the Greek word namos. And then in English, that word and namos is translated with law. Well, the Greek and the English words um, have more of a connotation of legal code. And Torah doesn't really mean legal code the way that namas and law in English do. But it means more instruction or teaching, which does include negative and positive commands. So I, I guess you would say Torah is broader than really what we think of when we say law. So walk in the law of the Lord um, you know, we thought we we think maybe we think Ten Commandments or six hundred thirteen commandments or or whatever it is, but Torah is actually broader than that. Now, so the tone for the psalm is set right here in this first stanza by seeing the joy of God's word that is a that it's a a delight to him that walks in it, and it also helps us begin to see how what brings out in this psalm is that holiness or God-likeness is really the goal of God's word more than emotional happiness and physical prosperity. So let's go to the second stanza, the Bet stanza, verses 9 to 16. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. So we see this wisdom imagery that's, start, that's starting to come in here, the use of direct or way uh, or path and how that's oftentimes set for the, the, you know, the course of someone's life. And ultimately, the way of folly and the way of wisdom are the only two ways. Um, Proverbs makes this clear. Uh, wisdom Psalms have, have made that clear as well. Uh, also, we see in this stanza how that the obedience to the word of God transforms. Obedient adherence to the word of God. Reading and keeping the word of God do, doesn't leave us unchanged. It doesn't leave us the same. It's, it's transformative. 
Um, and we also see in this stanza also from the start that God enables obedience. So one of the, one of the problems is, is that we have some baggage um, because of the word law. Um, we, you know, we think of legal code. And so we see walking in the law or keeping the law or, or something like that that may be referenced here. And immediately our minds think of works righteousness. And that, that's not actually the case. Um, and, and it would be really, um, it would be a, a, uh, a wrong assumption um, to start with that it just equals works righteousness. That's what's being talked about. Because as you go through the psalm, you're going to see that it's God who enables the obedience. It is, it is God's grace. Um, it is his gifts, his blessing. So that begins coming out there as well. Um, the Gimel stanza, verses 17 to 24. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. Though my soul breaketh for longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from thy commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but, the, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. So here we see this exile motif that comes in, particularly there in verse number 19. I'm a stranger, a sojourner, a wanderer, a pilgrim, um, a foreigner who is displaced from homeland in the earth. The other interesting um, thing that we see beginning in this stanza is that we start to see the lament elements come in because here you have um, a crisis complaint. There are princes that are speaking against him. There are powerful rulers that he is subjected to who are uh, essentially persecuting him. So remember with lament, you'll have petition for deliverance, you'll have crisis complaint, you'll have commitment um, to, to trust in the Lord and so on. The next stanza, verses 25 to 32, is the Dalit. My soul cleaveth unto the dust. Quicken thou me according to thy word. I have declared my ways, and thou heardest me. Teach me thy statutes. Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. So shall I talk of thy wondrous works. My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according to thy word. Remove from me the way of lying, and grant me thy law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. I have stuck unto thy testimonies, O Lord, put me not to shame. I will run the way of thy commandments when thou shalt enlarge my heart. Here we get the introduction of the imagery of death uh, or the imminent threat of death, um, the, the, the dust and, the, and the, uh, you know, the, uh, my soul melting for heaviness and, and all of that sort of thing as it's expressed, as, as if you know, the grave is near, um, which essentially is saying if you, know, if you don't help, if you don't deliver, um, then this is, this is my fate. Um, the next stanza, hey, um, verses 31 to 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in the way, thy way. Establish thy word unto thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Um, so he, um, he cannot keep God's word apart from God's help. And we're going to see these repeated pleas 
um, for, for God's help, for understanding, for opening of eyes, for guidance, for, and on and on. We're going to see these, these type of requests repeated. Like he, he knows and confesses that he cannot keep God's word apart from God's help. Um, and he wants to be turned away from anything that would divert. He, he doesn't want any double-minded or divided loyalties. Verses um, 41 to 48, the Vaf stanza. Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in thy commandments which I have loved. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. So one of the, uh, the, um, one of the things that's really challenging, obviously, when it comes to um, the structure, um, the, the letter of Av is, is not the beginning of a whole lot of Hebrew words. So if you, if you could see it, and it comes out some in the English, um, but every verse of this particular stanza starts with a conjunction. And so it's like forming just a big, long change, and, and, or a chain, not a change, a big, long chain, uh, saying and, 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 and that's just the way that, that that works. And like I said, there are some there in the English that, that we can see. Um, we also get the petition here um, for God's um, chesed, his, his mercy that is mentioned earlier in the chapter. We also get another reference here, um, which I think is, is a, a, just a glimpse a glimpse of a, of a future vision. I will speak of thy testimonies before kings and will not be ashamed. At that, at that time of that gathering and restoration of Israel, uh, when Christ is on the throne and the, the kings of the nations will, will come to the earth, I think we get just a brief glimpse there of, of what's ahead, what's in the future. Obviously, when you read this psalm, He's clinging to the word of God because that's all that he has. But he does look forward to this fulfillment. All right, the stanza Zion, uh, 49 to 56. Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word hath quickened me. The proud have had me greatly in derision, yet have I not declined from thy law. I remembered thy judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Horror hath taken hold upon me because of the wicked that forsake thy law. Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I have remembered thy name, O Lord, in the night and have kept thy law. This I had because I kept thy precepts. So in this particular stanza, we see an emphasis on remembering, needing to call to remembrance. We also get this exile motif, the house of my pilgrimage. Again, we're, we're seeing the enemies that are oppressing and, and causing problems. And then we come to the next stanza, um, 57 to 64, this is the Chet stanza. Thou art my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep thy words. I entreated thy favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. The bands of the wicked have robbed me, but I have not forgotten thy law. At midnight I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of thy mercy. Teach me thy statutes. So we see the continuance of the exile um, motif uh, when, when God is taken as the, as the portion, as the heritage, as the inheritance. In other words, the, the promised inheritance, which would, which would be um, the, uh, the 
promise of the of the land from Abraham to Isaac and, and Jacob um, down to the, to the people the nation of, of Israel that inheritance is again they're displaced they don't they don't possess that possession and so I've taken God as as my inheritance in other words um, God swore his covenant to Abraham we're told by his own name because he could swear by none greater and so it's like he's clinging so imagine uh, imagine maybe that you were the heir um, to some sort of fortune, but there was some delay or whatever, whatever that the case was, and, and in, the, in the meantime, you were living in the most deplorable, abject poverty possible. And, but all that while, you had a security that you were the heir and that at such and such time, whatever, you would come into your inheritance. So think about how precious that that security would be to you how much that you would cling to that. And that's just sort of a, of a little bit of the, the idea of the analogy. Well, God's word, God's, God's word, which records his covenant promises, this is the security. This is the guarantee. He's, he's not in the land. They're not possessing the possession. They don't have the nation. They don't have the kingdom. But they are clinging to these promises. Verses um, 65 to 72, the tet. Thou hast dealt well with thy servant, O Lord, according unto thy word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed thy commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Thou art good and doest good. Teach me thy statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in thy law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver." So this stanza introduces the recognition of the love and blessing of discipline, emphasizing that God is good, and that word is repeated quite a bit in this stanza, and that, that his word is, is good. So even, even then, the affliction that has been suffered has been seen as a good. It also seems like in this stanza that this would be a reference to perhaps the conversion um, of the psalmist. And so perhaps the, the psalmist was um, one of Israel um, who did not have faith and is in exile and, and uh, probably mad at God in the world for everything that's, that's going on. But we can see that there's been a change. He says, before I went, I went astray, you know, before I was afflicted, I went astray. And that it's been good um, for him to be afflicted so that he might learn um, God's word. The next stanza, verses 73 to 80, the Yod. Um, thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in thy word. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Let I pray thee thy merciful kindness be for my comfort according to thy word unto thy servant. Let thy tender mercies come unto me that I may live for thy law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed, for they dealt perversely with me without a cause, but I will meditate in thy precepts. Let those that fear thee turn unto me, and those that have known thy testimonies. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes, that I be not ashamed. So here we have um, reference uh, essentially to um, God as, um, as creator, as source of life, um, which essentially is sort of like saying, um, God who created life knows uh, best how life should be lived um, in relation to his word, obviously. 
The next stanza, verses 81 to 88, uh, is the cough. Um, My soul fainteth for thy salvation, but I hope in thy word. Mine eyes fail for thy word, saying, When wilt thou comfort me? For I am become like a bottle in the smoke, yet do I not forget thy statutes. How many are the days of thy servant? When wilt thou execute judgment on them that persecute me? The proud have digged pits for me, which are not after thy law. All thy commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help thou me. They had almost consumed me upon earth, but I forsook not thy precepts. Quicken me after thy loving kindness, so shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. So here we get the, the lament elements again, and we also we get these questions, when, how long. We've seen those pretty commonly in some of the laments. And what it reveals is that there's an expectation. There's, there's an expectation of deliverance because of God's covenant promises. And so the, the, the lament prayer is one that's based on God's covenant promises and is simply saying, God, you're going to deliver. You're going to do this, but how long must we wait? You know, you, you haven't yet. You know, how long? How much longer? That's the sort of thing. Uh, we also get some imagery here um, for suffering affliction. We get the eyes failing, um, which is sort of like, you know, staring off into the, into the distance at the horizon, you know, looking for something to come, and, it's, and it never has come. Um, so he's looking for the word. He's looking for the word to be fulfilled, and it hasn't yet. And so his, his eyes are failing for looking and searching for that. Um, the bottle in the smoke is a, a reference to like a wine skin. Um, that so if it's if it's been exposed to the smoke or to, or to the fire or the heat, it's been it's been dried out, and so that it's it's cracked and it's no it's no longer watertight and it's no longer you know usable for um, its its purpose. In other words. That's, so he's, he's making a comparison there of himself. Essentially, he's become useless um, through his uh, afflictions. And, of course, we get the mention of the enemies again. Verses 89 to 96, the Lamed. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. I am thine, save me, for I have sought thy precepts. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. So God's word governs the universe. In other words, settled in, his word is settled in heaven. It's, it's beyond reach um, to alter or destroy. Um, we, we cannot destroy. God has made promises. God has given his word, and, and we can't alter that or destroy it. Um, we do get a poetic sort of proverbial description of the limits of, man's kind, uh, of mankind and then the, against the unrestricted nature of the, the word of God. Um, the next stanza, uh, verses 97 to 104, is the mem. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments had made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way, that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. So here we get... Um, sort of a piling up of these terms that are related to wisdom, the understanding and, um, and meditation and um, all, all of those sort of things, coming to a better understanding than, than teachers or ancients that are clinging to um, tradition. 
Um, so God's word instructs, informs, and delights. Uh, the next stanza, the nun, um, 105 to 112. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn and I will perform it that I will keep thy righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. Accept, I beseech thee, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. My soul is continually in my hand, yet do I not forget thy law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. So God's word is the light for the path of life um, to avoid the snares of the wicked. So he's not talking about guidance here in the sense of, of choosing between you know, a couple of different outings that you could possibly do next Thursday. He's talking about real moral guidance in the right and good way. God's instruction here also are taken as an inheritance, uh, an inheritance, which is another contributes to that exile motif. 113 to 120 is the psalmic. I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. Depart from me, ye evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according unto thy word, that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe, and I will have respect unto thy statutes continually. Thou hast trodden down all them that err from thy statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. Thou puttest away all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love thy testimonies. My flesh trembleth for fear of thee, and I'm afraid of thy judgments. So, in this stanza, enemies and the opposition are, are always looming. And the one who trusts in God, the one who delights in his word, it would be contrasted with the double-minded um, wicked who oppose God's way. We get imagery here of, of God as refuge and, and shield. Uh, he's the shelter and security of uh, those in, uh, in true covenant relationship with him. We also get just a hint here of future judgment, um, God um, treading, treading them down and such. The next stanza, Ion, uh, verses uh, 121 to 128. I have done judgment and justice. Leave me not to mine oppressors. Be surety for thy servant for good. Let not the proud oppress me. Mine eyes fail for thy salvation and for the word of thy righteousness. Deal with thy servant according unto thy mercy and teach me thy statutes. I am thy servant. Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. So as we go through the, uh, we see the lament elements in this psalm. Um, we have also are seeing um, sort of emerging the lament coming from the righteous sufferer. So sometimes we have the penitential laments that are, lamenting a crisis that is due to some sin um, or wrong on the part of, of the one praying. Uh, and then we have the laments of the righteous sufferer who's suffering oppression and persecution and, and affliction, um, not, not directly due to any, any fault of his own. So we see that coming out. And we also get a little bit of an expression of, of impatience. And again, we have to think of that in a covenantal context, that God has, has promised and, and given many assurances um, that that this deliverance is going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. The next stanza, 129 to 136, is the pay. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I long for thy commandments. Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me, as thou used to do unto those that love thy name. 
Order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Deliver me from the oppression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant and teach me thy statutes. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. So we get uh, the wonder of God's word being expressed here. There's a word um, that's used here, wonder and wonderful. Um, It's a word that's oftentimes used to describe God's miraculous acts um, of deliverance for Israel. We also get some imagery here, that, that thirsting and panting animal. Um, which really is a, an image of a, of a parched animal searching for water. water. I mean, it's, it's urgent. It's, it's a, a life or death situation. So it's not just sort of this calm pastoral scene, you know, with the deer gently lapping um, at the water. But this is a desperate animal that is, that is so thirsty on the brink of death searching for water. And that's a pretty strong imagery um, that is used there. The next stanza, the sare. Uh, 137 to 144. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet do not I forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. So here we get an expression of confidence, which is something we expect in, in a lament um, type setting. There's, this, there's a trust in God, there's trust in God's word. So the righteous sufferer takes comfort in God's word and the promise of deliverance, but at the same time longs for its fulfillment. We get reference to the word of God being pure. In other words, it's, it's, it's not tarnished, it's not tainted. Um, you've, we've probably all had the experience of someone telling us something uh, and then they don't keep their word and maybe we ask them about it or something and they say, oh, no, 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 that wasn't what I said. I, you, you know, I said this. And they've got some technicality built into that word, you know, that lets them get out of their obligations. Uh, no, I didn't, you know, I didn't violate my word. But God's word's not like that. God's word is pure. God's, God's word is the, is the real thing. Um, it is absolutely trustworthy. The next stanza, the kof, um, kof actually, um, verse... Um, 145 to 152. I cry with my whole heart, hear me, O Lord, I will keep thy statutes. I cried unto thee, save me, and I shall keep thy testimonies. I prevented the dawning of the morning and cried, I hoped in thy word. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness, O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgment. They draw nigh that follow after mischief, they are far from thy law. Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. So this um, stanza uh, brings in some of the aspect of God's silence. And again, we see that in the lament. You know, why, why aren't you taking action? Why haven't you done something? So there's a request here to be heard and to be answered. And throughout this psalm, we've seen how near the oppressors are. And here in this stanza, we get sort of the counterbalance to that. God is nearer. And so this is, the, this is the expression of the psalmist, even though at the time he's saying, how long, uh, when, how long is it going to be, um, you know, are, are you being silent? Next stanza, 153 to 160, this is Resh. Consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. Plead my cause and deliver me, quicken me according to thy word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. Greater thy tender mercies, O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgments. 
Many are my persecutors and mine enemies, yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not thy word. Consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. Thy word is true from the beginning. Every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Obviously, you notice a a piling up of covenant-related terms in this particular stanza. There's an urgency to the, to the plea of the psalmist, and the appeal is through the covenant. So when, when, when you read through like Psalm 119 and you see these promises that are according to God's word, it's, it's, not, it's not just general. It's not just some general state. Well, you know, God's a good God, so we can expect good things generally. No, there are specific promises that God has made that are being appealed to in this psalm. And that, that's why that there's hope even in the midst of this suffering because according to his word, he's going to do it. The question is just, you know, how long? How, when? When is this going to happen? So the next stanza, um, seen, seen or sheen, you may, you may have one or both there. It's uh, one of those uh, letters that has uh, actually a little bit different pointing depending on um, whether it's more of a s or a sh sound. Um, verses 161 to 168. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them or stumble them. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before thee. So here we get this commitment to praise and expression of confidence. Um, the righteous sufferer experiences persecution and peace at the same time. Last stanza is the Tav, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, um, 169 to 176. Let, me, let my cry come near before thee, O Lord. Give me understanding according to thy word. Let my supplication come before thee. Deliver me according to thy word. My lips shall utter praise when thou hast taught me thy statutes. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. Let thine hand help me, for I have chosen thy precepts. I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise thee. Let thy judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. So we get the closing pleas um, of, of, this, of the lament elements, particularly of this psalm. Um, Pleas for understanding, pleas for deliverance, pleas for help, pleas for salvation, pleas for life. Uh, and then this psalm ends with a lost sheep hoping for a shepherd. One of the uh, commentators, I like the way they put it, this long psalm ends on a cliffhanger. <laughs> a lost sheep hoping for a shepherd. All right, so let's go to our interpretation. What does Psalm 119 teach? Well, obviously it teaches the importance of God's word, which is his written revelation of himself. Um, this is, I'm just going to paraphrase uh, the way that Jim Hamilton summed this up in his commentary. Um, so this isn't an exact quote, but it is it's pretty close, but it's a paraphrase. God's word produces the fear of God, feels the content of what his people are to believe, draws the boundaries within which they are to live, commands avoidance of death-dealing sin, gives light that exposes snares on the path, cleanses the way of deception and falsehood, promises salvation, and all of it is faithful, total truth that gives wisdom and understanding. So that was his summary of, of Psalm 119 
on the Word of God. And I thought you put that very well. So just a couple of um, couple of things that that you know come out. We get on the one hand the exceeding value of God's Word expressed in this Psalm, greater than riches like silver and gold. That comes out in verses fourteen seventy two and one twenty seven. It's sweeter than honey to the taste. One hundred three stirs our affections, our desire and longing. Uh, verses 40, 97, 113, 127, and 131. Gives us delight and joy, verses 14, uh, 47, and verse 11. It is a source of meditation, verses 15, 97, and 99. It moves us to worship, verses 38 and 62. It is the object of our love, verses 97, 113, 119, 132, 159, 163, 165, and 167. God's word is righteous, verse 775, 123, 138, 144, 172. Reliable, verses 43 and 142. Unshakable, verses 89 to 91 and 152. Inexhaustible, verses 18, 27, and 129. Those are, that's just some of the expressions of the value of God's word in this psalm. Here are some of the expressions of the benefits of God's word to us. Guidance or light for our path in 105. The purifying of our way in verse number 9. Peace in 165. Life in verses 25 and 93. Wisdom, verses 98 to 104. Comfort, verses 50 and 76. And encouragement, verse number 74. So as you read this psalm and its meditation about God's word, you also realize that this psalm is not, it's not stopping there. It's not stopping at a written word. It's, God's word is not an end in itself as just sort of a legal or literary or historic work, even, even if you say masterpiece. God's word is given for us to know him, to be like him, and ultimately to forever be with him. And that, that comes out in this psalm as, as well. Now, the messianic hope in this psalm is seen through the promise of salvation by the shepherd who will seek and save his lost sheep. And, of course, that's the uh, cliffhanger at the end of the particular psalm. But if we think about this psalm, and there's, a, there's actually a number of ways that we could um, connect this with, with the Messiah, with, with Christ. But just think about the sum of this psalm. God's word promises the way, the truth, and the life. All in, this, all in Psalm 119. And we think about how that, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm not going to read it all, but John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, sometimes referred to as the prologue of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and on and on until the Word became flesh, and we, we beheld His glory full of, of grace and truth, the only begotten of the Father, and all, all of these things that are, that are brought out in that first part there. And then also in John chapter 14 and verse number 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the Word of God that is, that's longed for and looked for that comes to the earth, comes to us, and brings God's salvation. We can also think, of course, in John 10, uh, verses 11 to 16, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. That the good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep, but he that's an hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, 
The wolf catcheth them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep have I which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Well, this is not the only psalm to use shepherd imagery um, to speak of the coming of the Messiah, or in the prophets that use shepherd imagery to speak of the coming of the Messiah. But again, this psalm ends with that wonderful cliffhanger. I'm a lost sheep. I'm a lost sheep hoping for a shepherd to seek me out and save me. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ said that he came to do. All right, so applications. Um, Three applications, with each one having eight sub-applications that all begin with a different letter. No, that's that's just seeing if you're still awake. All right, number one, understanding Psalm 119 helps us understand that God's Word is not just a, some sort of a legal code for us to earn righteousness. God's word is a unique treasure to guide us in life, to bless us beyond comprehension, and ultimately to save us by knowing God and his Christ. Number two, understanding Psalm 119 helps us understand the place God's word should have in our lives. So if you read this psalm and you just think about the position, and I talked earlier about some of the hints in the psalm as far as like the occasion of the writing with the exile and, and the enemies and the oppression. And when you think about it, the psalmist is, is displaced and is suffering, has kings and princes and rulers that are persecuting and afflicting, apparently has no friends, he has no other help, no deliverance, no, no salvation from anywhere else. So when you think about this, the psalmist writing this psalm, all he has is God's word. That's all he has. He doesn't have a temple. doesn't have a tabernacle. doesn't have a, a, a priest. doesn't have a sacrifice. doesn't have a festival. doesn't have the land. doesn't have Jerusalem. doesn't have anything. All that he has is God's word. But when you read this psalm, you just can't help but understand this psalm, God's word, is sufficient. God's word is sufficient. So what place does the word of God have in our life? It, It is a central place. It is the one thing to which we cling that reveals to us the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That comes through God's word. So it is absolutely a treasure without equal on this earth. Better than the silver and the gold and the honey and all the things that are are mentioned in the psalm. So it should have that place in our lives. If we have nothing else and we have the word of God, then we are rich and blessed beyond measure. Number three, understanding Psalm 119 helps us understand how to have hope and peace when all we have is God's word. So this psalmist prays on the basis of promises that God has made in his word. Again, it's not just a general appeal. 
well, you know, I think God is good and loving, and so surely, you know, he'll, he'll do something good for us or, um, you know, something like that. No, no, no. There are specific promises that God has made. Even, even as Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and told them about the Holy Spirit that sealed them unto the day of redemption, the earnest of your inheritance, he says. We, we have security through the word of God. And that really is how we can have hope and peace even in, in the midst of, of affliction, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of, of trials, and, and maybe in the midst of a whole lot of things that just don't seem to be going our way.